Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, folks. This is Rick Wilson, and welcome to the Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. Hi, I'm Molly Jonkfast, novelist and editor at large at the Daily Beast, and the person who tells Rick not to tweet the things he wants to tweet. I'm an editor at large at the Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best selling author, and full time troublemaker. The New Abnormal is about one nation under a pandemic and how it's changing all of us. We'll talk about what's happening in the country and the culture and look at good and bad people, leadership, and ideas. Molly and I come from very different political worlds, but what brings us together is that we both love America and we realize that putting our country over party and ideas over ideology might be the only thing that gets us through this. We'll be joined by smart guests from media, politics, culture, medicine, and science. I'll try to keep Rick to the minimum number of curse words and try to keep our pets and other wildlife sounds from invading our respective bunkers. I'm always impressed with his speeches is that he never says anything conciliatory at all. No, he can't because Donald Trump thinks that anything like that, it's weak. I can't show weakness. I'm a very strong, masculine, dominant man. I can't show weakness. I also think it's probable that Santa Monica Goebbels, Stephen Miller, is not helping him. Probably not. I do think that Jared's speech would be a lot less attractive than Kellyanne's. Probably declaring that the Reichstag fire was the result of outside agitators would be where Miller's head would go on that. And you can see that theme coming out here. You've got Bill Barr over the weekend, and you've got the National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien over the weekend and others out saying, these are agitators, these are infiltrators, these are rebels, these are Antifa terrorists. They're certainly jacking up a certain rhetorical set of tropes that are familiar from other prior things where democracy has slid into bad things. But I'm not saying that Trump is Hitler because, as we know, Hitler had normal-sized hands and could read. I also think Hitler was able to paint. Donald Trump is able to paint. Those little fingers are capable of very fine detail work. I do think it's interesting, though, that he has been completely uninterested in any kind of conciliatory behavior at all. But what I was going to say was the Antifa is basically the caravan. The midterm fake caravan is now Antifa. Look, uh, and for our audience, Antifa comes from this thing called the Black Block in Portland, a bunch of fucking teenagers who wear balaclavas and black track suits and black outfits. And the Trump world has blown them up into essentially their fantasy version of American ISIS. When in fact, you could much better describe groups like the Proud Boys and these alt-writers and Richard Spencer's little friends much more accurately as American ISIS with a clean vanilla scent. And they've killed a lot more people, the alt-right. I don't know, call me crazy, but when people like the Tree of Life guy and the New Zealand shooter and the guy at Walmart are all inspired by these white replacement manifestos, which by the way also informs the thinking of people like Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller and Seb Gorka and all these other jackals. Do you mean Dr. Sebastian Gorka? Herr Dr. 
Gorka, the most manly man in America. That's right. The wave of his Drakkar Noir precedes him. You know he's very manly because he has an Art of War license plate. I know he's very manly because he wears a McLovin vest. I know he's very manly because he has the largest head I've ever seen on a human. I know he's very manly because I found a copy in a used bookstore of Seb Gorka's Art of the Pump. Oh, shut up. That's not a real thing. Is it, though? (laughs) Before we get to our guest today, and folks, we have a longer show today. A lot of you have been asking for that. We want to give the audience what they want. We've got two fantastic guests coming up today. But before we do that, I just want to ask if you've heard about the Riot Bees. What? They're not the Murder Hornets. The Murder Hornets and the Riot Bees are separate completely. Wait, what? The most reliable news source in America, InfoWars. Oh, yes. I've heard of them. They reported that a man from Janesville, Wisconsin, was so concerned about rioting and protests in downtown Janesville, he took 12 crates of bees on a trailer and was going to, quote, kick them over if things got out of control. So (laughs) dumb. Was the guy with the murder bees Paul Ryan? Well, you know, Paul is from Janesville, but this was somebody named Greg Hoft. Apparently no relation to Jim Hoft. (laughs) Or in Hoff, for that matter. Is Jim Hoft the dumbest man on the internet? Jim Hoft and Bill Mitchell will soon be competing in a caged naked pudding wrestling match to determine which has the title of the dumbest man on the internet, yeah. But you know, it's interesting to me because we were criticizing Seb Gorka's enormous head, but Bill Mitchell himself has a very small head. I'm kind of the compromise candidate. I have a giant head with a giant forehead, so I combine the best of all I possible worlds. I also have a giant head, too. My God, Molly, think about it if we'd ever bred. <laughs> giant headed. The kids would look like the product of Mars Attacks. <laughs> or, or Mr. Potato Head kind of thing. <laughs> Okay, we have a really exciting guest today. Eddie Glaude is the chair of the African American Studies Department at Princeton. And he's here to talk to us about the moment in politics we're going through and also the racial disparities in the treatment of COVID. Eddie, my question for you is this. Where do we go from here? What's the landscape look like to you? And how do we, what can we do? The landscape is dystopian in so many ways, right? Because it's a combination of the devastation of COVID-19 and the ongoing revelation of the ugly racial underbelly of American life. When you have what is in effect the effects of 1918, 1929, and 1968 all rolled into one, it becomes almost unimaginable how we will muster the resources to respond to this. But it seems to me that what has been revealed in the midst of this crisis is that we have to imagine America anew. And that's going to take some hard work because for at least the last 40 years, we have had an assault on our imaginations about how we imagine being together. And we have appealed to our lesser angels in so many ways. And now here we are, in the midst of a global pandemic that's turned everything upside down and black folk are in the streets once again. You know, Eddie, I think there were a lot of people, and myself included as a sort of political historian, who looked immediately and thought, oh God, Trump is going to replay the Nixon playbook from 1968. He's going to use this to scare suburban white voters and tell them that if they don't vote for him, those people are going to come out to their community and burn it to the ground. I think he'll try, 
I think people around him like Steve Bannon will try. But do you think we're in a different world now? Do you think that people are more cognizant of that? Do you think that we're in a place as a society where we're not going to necessarily fall into that trap again? I'm not sure because, you know, remember the sociological data, the postmortem of the 2016 election said that in so many ways, in so many ways that election was a proxy for kind of racial divisions, that the partisanship that we saw, that we experienced, the deep partisan divides actually played themselves out along blackness and whiteness, right? It, who identified with what? And of course, Trump's incompetency, it did not settle the matter, right? Folks that will vote for this guy because he's going to, A, give it to the libs and we can in some ways take our country back. And we saw not just simply working white working class men, high school educated men vote for him. We saw him win in, in a number of different demographics within white America. So one wonders if the pandemic and three and a half years of disaster will lead folk to not invest in this idea of whiteness as a basis for political decision-making. Do you have thoughts about Biden's VP pick? I don't want us to kind of get caught up in a kind of crude representational politics. I'm more interested in not making the Tim Kaine mistake. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we talked about that on Thursday. <laughs> I mean, if Biden and those folk make that mistake again, they're going to depress turnout. The progressive wing of the party will throw a hissy fit and we won't see the kind of energy that we need to see at the polls. We already have the ultimate depressor of the vote, and that is COVID-19. So they can't be silly in this moment, it seems to me. My thinking is that Biden wouldn't be the nominee if it weren't for Clyburn. What's your thinking on that? I don't want to underestimate the political power of Clyburn in South Carolina, but I don't want to overestimate it either. I think in the context of the three years of Trump, I think a lot of black voters made and are making a very practical decision, right? That is, we could choose to vote for someone who has this big vision about the direction of the country, or we could just simply trust our instincts and know that white America might vote this guy back into office. We need to just vote for the safest choice that we can in order to make sure we get Trump out of office. And so I think it's really important. It wasn't just the case that Clyburn just like rang a bell and all of a sudden all the black folks showed up and voted for Biden, right? We want to give them more political agency. I think there's a political calculus here at work that has everything to do with a judgment of the Trump administration and its danger to black communities across the country. So, Eddie, one of the things that in that racist playbook that the Trump folks exploited in 16, all these tropes of African-Americans are wild, they're uncontrolled, and they're going to say the word riot about a million times and try to not discuss a systemic police department full of people who should not be patrolling anything, much less running free to essentially murder folks in the street. How much danger do you think in terms of our national discourse is that? It is really dangerous, Rick, and uh, it offers us an opportunity to really muster up a counter-argument that should be very convincing. Let me put it this way. In 1968, when Nixon made that argument, when you look at it, it's kind of puzzling on a certain level, right? So it is the case that you can be against, vehemently opposed to violent protests. But it doesn't follow from that that you should then be opposed to racial justice. It doesn't make any sense for you to decry violent protest and then double down on ugliness. And then say the police are never wrong. Right. So it becomes then, oh, this is just an occasion for you to justify your desire to double down on ugliness. Right? So part of what we have to do is begin to expose the way in which this insidious understanding of race 
operates, that it's not just simply the loud racist. It's not just the Steve Bannons that are the problem. It's not just the Boogie Boys or however we want to describe them, right? The Boogaloo the Boys. Boogaloo Boys, right. It, those people aren't just simply the problem, right? Folk who are looking for the excuse to double down on their separation from those others, right? These are the people who have the country by the throat. The loud races are who they are. And Rick, you know this as being in politics. The Republican Party has exploited those folk, not the loud folk. You guys have used them for a long time. That was one of the things when I wrote my first book, Eddie, that I had to really grapple with was that acknowledgement that we knew those people were there and we took them out to shove them off to go vote every couple of years and we tried to put them back in the closet. I have gone through a lot of reflection on that and the fact that those people now have political power and I'm not just some random constituency you can activate once in a while. I take some responsibility on that front and I have some regrets on that front. And most of all, because there were people in my party who did stand up publicly and vocally. And the fact that we had this weight dragging underneath us and that we kept it around for so long is one of the sins that we're all going to have to deal with in that party for a long time. And I, on the one hand, I'm kind of glad Trump killed the Republican Party because what comes next can be conscious of that horrible group of people because I don't want them around ever. Even if I don't win elections, I don't want those people around. I don't want to need them as part of any coalition I'm a part of. Yeah, I remember that conversation we had. You made this point, and it's, it's really important to have a public conversation about certain issues. I would love to have a debate about the role of government without thinking my interlocutors are, are engaging in bad faith, that really what's motivating their position with regards to welfare, what's really motivating their position with regards to voting is this racial animus underneath it. If we could get that out of our politics so that we can then have an honest debate about what's the best way to pursue the good, then we're in a healthier position. But you know, I was thinking about this too as I was watching the police the other day in the context of the protests. And you know, you bracket the tear gas and you bracket the rubber bullets. And I was looking at the aggression. I was looking at the contempt and the insult. And the first thing I thought about is this is the way in which black communities are often policed. Again, I'm bracketing the tear gas, bracketing the rubber bullets. I'm talking about the ways in which the, some of these officers were engaging the citizenry, pushing them around, throwing them, knocking them down, doing each encounter Right, becomes an encounter that is overdetermined by the possibility of contempt and insult. And then, because you have this happening daily, it then results in, it provides the condition for the consequence of something that we just saw with George Ford. If police officers feel empowered to treat any member of our society, any citizen, with the shit I've seen this week of dragging. I saw one video of an African-American woman dragged out of her car, surrounded by 25 cops being tased and pepper sprayed and kicked at the same time. But the idea in the GOP that there's sort of a cop cult, the cops can do no wrong. Back the blue. They're the only ones keeping back the tide of chaos. Well, I suspect that some of the chaos here is coming from the behavior and some of the extension of this crisis is coming from some of the behavior of overly militarized and overly empowered police forces who are now anonymous behind their own black masks and their own covered badges. And they feel like they have agency to do whatever they want to African-Americans particularly. Eddie, I have a question for you about policing. How would you, in your ideal world, can you think of a way that the police department could sort of 
fix itself? Is there a... Well, I think, you know, there are a couple of things that I think that we need to talk about nationally that are really readily readily at hand, right? We need to address, I thought the New York Times editorial board just a couple of days ago with uh, the notion of addressing the idea of qualified immunity uh, was really important because we got to begin to hold the so-called bad cops accountable. And it's very difficult to do so. I think we need to talk about the criminal code. You can, and here I'm going to sound much more like a libertarian and surprise some folks, but you could damn near sneeze and, and, and break the law in this country. We need to begin to start decriminalizing because you're creating over and over again the conditions for encounters with the police that lead to things that we've been talking about. Dealing with qualified immunity, talking about decriminalization, I think we need a national uniform code of the use of force could then really, really have an impact on how police engage the citizenry. So I think in each of these instances, what I'm talking about is trying to scale back, right, the number of encounters that everyday ordinary Americans have with police. One of the interesting things about black communities is that we're over-policed and under-protected. So we have this ongoing encounter with the police force, and then it looks as if we're like we're overrun by crime because the police are constantly policing us. But I tell you, if some police came to Princeton on a Thursday and Friday night <laughs> and a Saturday right. night, right. <laughs> I'm sure they would find some things to arrest some folks about. You get the point. My other question for you is, and this may be an annoying question, but I feel like we have a lot of our listeners are white liberals who want to know what they can do. Do you have thoughts on like useful ways you know, I think part of the thing that we have to do is begin to imagine together what a just America would look like and begin to act in concrete ways to make that a reality. And a just America doesn't will not come about by way of a philanthropic orientation. It's not about white liberals giving black folks something, right? It's not about a kind of charitable gesture, right? Justice is not white folks' possession to give to anyone in my view. And so part of what we have to do is to begin to have, I think, a serious conversation about what the public good entails. What does it mean to talk about a living wage? What does it mean to talk about liberty? And you see, I'm trying to move across the spectrum here. What does it mean to talk about liberty in concrete terms? How do we have differences within the context of agreed upon baseline things about how Americans, no matter their color, no matter who they love, no matter where they live or their zip code, how they should live? You know, there's a wonderful line. It's a very powerful line that James Baldwin has. He says, um, I don't trust people who think as liberals. I don't want anybody working with me because they're doing something for me. And so I don't want folks to think about the question of racial justice as something that you want to do for folks. I want to think about it as really being about creating a more just world. And that involves deconstructing the idea of whiteness that you may have, that I may have, it involves thinking about those structures that reproduce inequality. It involves how you make decisions about the distribution of resources and benefit. And that's going to take a while for us to get to. But we have to get out of this philanthropic model, this charitable orientation, so that we can all get about the business of building a more just world. Can you talk just for a minute or two about what you think with the coronavirus and the racism in the healthcare, because it speaks to the larger issues of mother mortality in the African-American, like there's such a disturbing, I've read so many things about this, that African-Americans are getting a much less good level of health care. Yeah. So, I mean, we know that COVID-19 has metastasized in the fissures and breakages of American society. And health care delivery has been 
overrun in some ways by racial disparity, right? So not only in terms of African-American communities' access to health care, it's also about how our pain is managed by physicians, the way in which we have access to quality care. And then you combine that with these structural realities. We live in hyper-concentrated communities of poverty for the most part, large numbers of us. Not all of us, obviously. And then you think about the ways in which those communities are often food deserts, where there are more fast food restaurants than there are supermarkets. And mainly folks are getting their food from bodega-like places, so they're not getting access to fresh vegetables. So what you see is high levels of diabetes, high levels of hypertension, heart disease, and the like. And so when you begin to think about that has something to do with choice, but it also has to do with what choices you have to choose from. So part of what these comorbidities reflect in so many ways is the deeply unequal nature of American society. And so it's been revealed by COVID-19 precisely because, the, as I said earlier, the, the virus metastasizes in those breakages. And then folk who are going to the hospital model, they're going to hospital. Some of them are going too late. But even those who go early in the early stages are being told to go back home. Because of the way in which race impacts and shadows healthcare delivery. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience, and it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries, and it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash The New Abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash The New Abnormal. 
Hey folks, if you're a fan of the new Abnormal podcast, you're going to love The Last Laugh. Hosted by the Daily Beast, Matt Wilstein. The Last Laugh is a podcast where comedians get real. Every week, Matt talks to some of the biggest names in comedy, including Sarah Silverman, Sasha Baron Cohen, Samantha Bee, Larry Wilmore, and Steve Bannon. Oh wait, not Steve Bannon. About how they're staying funny as the world falls apart around them. Well folks... You may have missed Fuck That Guy last week, but we've got a twofer for you right now. So today's Fuck That Guy goes straight to the top. The President of the United States, you know him, you loathe him, Donald Trump, was on a conference call today with governors talking about the rioting sweeping the country. On that call, he didn't try to call for peace and reconciliation or to find a way to reduce the tensions. No, he told the governors that they were weak and they looked like fools because they weren't taking to the streets. They weren't taking back the streets, pardon me. He claimed that Washington was under very good control and he's going to have it under much more control soon because he's a cowardly chicken shit who hid in his basement this weekend. The reason this is a fuck that guy is because the president of the United States is on a conference call with governors and he's berating them and he's abusing them and he's yelling at them. He's trying to browbeat these people into going out and having their cops and their state police be more abusive to try to use the National Guard to go out and enforce his idea that they're going to go and take to the streets and take it back. And I'm sorry, this is a guy who's been so lawless for so fucking long that there's no forgiving this kind of thing. As an ancillary fuck that guy, I'd like to give a shout out to Senator Tom Cotton, who's today arguing that we should deploy the 82nd Airborne, the 10th Mountain Division, the Marines and other units units into our streets because that always ends well. Fuck that guy. Tom Cotton really is an asshole. He wanted to go to war with China. He wanted to buy Greenland. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when the Republican Party had sold him as like the smart guy. You know, the party is full of dumb smart guys like Ted Cruz, who's a smart guy, but he's dumb about everything else. You should keep an eye on Tom Cotton because he's a smart, smart guy, but he is clearly infected with this sort of nationalist populist Trump virus. And I know he is one of the people who is considering running for president in 2024 on the platform of, I'm not like Donald Trump. I'm smooth and sophisticated and don't wear a fancy wig. But you should be very aware that there are some flashing danger signs when anybody who thinks they're going to run for president is talking about deploying active duty military forces into the streets of this country. I find Time Cotton to have like sort of Devin Nunes broken brain syndrome. Look, don't mistake Tom. He's very smart. He's a very smart guy. Devin, God bless Devin, but no one in the class ever said, Devin is very bright, but doesn't get along well with the other children. It was, Devin likes to lick the wallpaper paste and stares in the corner for hours on end at motes of dust floating in the air. Devin's never been bright. Tom is scary smart. That's what makes the evil worse, Molly. But I still think Devin Nunez and Tom Cotton both have broken brains. Oh, look, I think anybody who embraces the idea of deploying active duty military forces into the streets of America. Yeah. I mean, blowing up the cities seems like a mistake. Something is wrong with that person. Why does he just do for like go for an intervening step? Why don't we just start using reaper strikes and, and going after these crowds of people? Why don't we just drone strike them? It saves a lot of money. Saves a lot of gas moving the 82nd around. He moved from war with China to war with Chicago, like very quickly. I don't think those are mutually exclusive. This is true. I'm sure that once Tom's troops get there to Chicago, they'll be greeted as liberators. Yeah, really. We'll be thrilled <laughs> to have them. Governor Pritzker confronted Trump on the call, supposedly, and said, I have been extraordinarily concerned with the rhetoric coming out of the White House making it worse. People are feeling real pain out there. We have to have national leadership in calling for calm. And supposedly, Trump said, I don't like your rhetoric much either. 
especially with respect to coronavirus, you could have done a much better job. I'm not a poopy pants. You're a poopy pants. <laughs> I mean, that's seriously the level of rhetoric of this fucking president, for God's sakes. It's sort of amazing. One guy's fighting about PPE. The other guy's talking about the governor's deploying military force against civilian protesters. Good look, Don. You know, it's interesting to me when he hid in the bunker, Bunker Trump? Bunker bitch has been trending on Twitter. <laughs> Donald Trump hiding in the bunker. It's just like when JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis operated out of a diner in Paducah, Kentucky to keep himself safe. Oh, wait, he was in the White House. It's just like when Richard Nixon walked out to confront protesters and have a conversation with them on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1970 at the height of the Vietnam War. Except that Trump is a chicken shit who's afraid of a bunch of teenage kids. And he, so he hides in the basement and rage tweets. His tweets that night were so bizarre. The vicious dogs, the ominous weapons like they've never seen before. And then his trained squirrels run out the next day. I don't know if you saw our good friend Dan Dingdongo doing a muscle shirt video where he's like, I hope they go over the wall. It is a huge mistake. They'll be taken out. And he's like, you practically see his erection straining through the table. Bingo Von Bongo is the reason supposedly why... Antifa was now designated as a terrorist organization. Yes. And Baron von Schlongo has this magical power with Trump right now where he is a tough guy and Trump likes the tough guys. And he's reveling in his power. And now they've declared a bunch of teenagers. The organization Antifa, just for our audience's reminder, there is no such thing as Antifa. It's not a real thing. And I await the White House declaration that the Klan is a terrorist organization because they're actually still a thing. Trust me, I'm getting emails from them all day today. Be afraid of the organized fascists. So, like, I think the story of Donald Trump in the bunker this weekend led to this cuckoo pants, completely off-the-rails conference call today with the governors, where he was apparently, according to multiple witnesses, unhinged and shouty and tell them to take back the streets. Crack down. You're going to look weak if you don't. You've got to dominate them. Yeah, the only thing Donald Trump can dominate is a Big Mac. But I think a lot of strain is showing on the president right now because the idea of the 1968 rehash, the idea of rehashing 68 in Donald Trump's mind had that appeal. But I also think he doesn't necessarily understand how deeply this country is blaming him. I spoke to a business owner in D.C., who told me that his business downtown had been vandalized and heavily damaged over the weekend. And he says, he said all the people helping him clean up weren't blaming the rioters or these kids. They're blaming Trump. They feel like he's let this go on and wants this to go on and wants this to drag out for political advantage. And that idea setting in as a public perception, if it does, will be very bad for Donald Trump. He's caught in a problem now too. His supporters, many, many of them, they love this stuff. They want to be out there wearing their Hawaiian shirts and doing their little things and pretending to be Antifa while they're able to go out and be as disruptive and chaotic as they would like to be and try to blame African-Americans for all of it. And I can tell you how sensitive they are because uh, this weekend's been a fantastic death threat palooza starting last night. <laughs> Let me ask you this question again. I feel like I ask this on every episode, but why are you getting death threats, Rick Wilson? <laughs> So last night around 10 o'clock, the Lincoln Project launched a new ad, and it's called The Flag of Treason. And it asked Americans the question, Donald Trump's rallies, people supporting him, they keep showing up with this flag of a nation that tried to destroy America. They keep showing up with the flag of, as we put it in the ad, and I think this poked the bear the hardest, the flag of the losers. 
<laughs> I don't think I had one guy send me an email last night around 1150, this long rant about the bravery of Civil War soldiers, which was not what we're disputing, about the glory of the Civil War and how the banner of the Confederates is a wonderful thing. Hold it high and proud, blah, blah, blah. And a quick Google search of his name revealed not only his extensive criminal record, <laughs> but the fact that I, look, I'm packing my COVID-19 right now. This guy could eat me in one bite. I mean, just like 450 pounds geared up with his AR-15. <laughs> I'm like, what are you going to do? Chase me down the street on your rascal scooter? <laughs> we poke the racist bear. And the, and of course, I'm a big fan of the Proverbs 28-1. And that is the guilty man flees when no one pursues him. So many of these mainline conservative types are responding both on Twitter and email and, ever, and elsewhere, just losing their crap over this ad because they're like, how dare you consider us to be rah, rah, rah. I'm like, y'all seem awful nervous for somebody who says you're not like the Confederate flag. What, what's all that about? Right. They really do. But it's interesting to me to see Biden is out and about speaking at churches and meeting protesters. This is really an opportunity for Biden to really differentiate himself from Trump. Look, Biden has been letter perfect on his messaging during this. He's been spot on target and he has been a conciliator and someone who's trying to bring the country back together and someone who's not excusing any violence on any side of this equation. And he's done it just right. And he's done something Donald Trump is unable to do and to be. He's done it in a way that looks and sounds presidential. And he's gone out into the streets to talk to folks. I assure you, Donald Trump will not go to any live human being who is in the middle of these protests, he will never speak to those people. He is speaking to his base only. And according to the Federal Aviation Administration, I got a little notification this morning because I'm a pilot of all the flight restriction areas. Donald Trump this weekend is going to be fighting back against the unrest in our country and the coronavirus at his golf course in Bedminster. No better way to fight injustice. No better way to face up to injustice and racism and police abuse. <laughs> than a few rounds of golf at your private club. Than heading to your private golf club. Why didn't we just call this whole show Fuck This Guy? <laughs> because the amount of fuckery out there that needs to be called down is just endless. Well, eventually, hopefully, it won't always be Fuck That Guy. On that note, we'll wrap up this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. We're just getting started and don't want you to miss an episode. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm Molly Jongfast and he's the Rick Wilson. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again on the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.